Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're following the account of the Jews who returned from exile to Jerusalem. And it's a story of renewing God's community. And it has application to us because the church is God's community in our day that he is renewing through Jesus Christ. And there are principles in Ezra and Nehemiah and all the scripture to help us to be renewed and to be what God intended. So last week we, we were introduced to a man named Nehemiah. He was a high official in Persia. He was also a Jew, a descendant of the exiles in Babylon. And he inquired about the state of things in Jerusalem where Ezra had gone about 13 years beforehand. And uh, Ezra had gone there to teach God's word and to work that into every fabric of society. So Nehemiah was hopeful to hear a good report. But instead, he's told the people there are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And that's the work, apparently, of those who had quashed the small rebuilding that they had started at some point, uh, tore it all back down, burned the gates, put an end to all of that. And so Nehemiah hears about that. He's devastated so he weeps and he mourns, he fasts and he prays, and then he resolves to do something about it. He has a plan in his mind, and he's going to go to the king, whom he's close to because he's the cupbearer, and he's going to see what the king can do, whether he'll give him permission to go. So let's begin by reading in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took, the cup, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, please show us again 
what we can learn from your activity in the past. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Your way of salvation has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have lessons for us to learn, for our encouragement, and for us to appreciate more and more how good it is to be reconciled to you. And so give us eyes to see today from this ancient letter what it means to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is to be gained by stepping out in the Christian faith? I mean, by, by doing the things that we read in the Bible, the commands, the uh, principles to live by, the ideals to strive after, what is to be gained by doing those things? I think that question has at least some relevance to all of us because we're in a church meeting. <laughs> we have some reason to want to know what is in the Bible, what is it all about, this faith in Jesus Christ, this faith that's centered on His life, death, and resurrection. So what is to be gained by going in God's direction, we might say, especially when His direction seems to be at odds with the direction most people are going in. Well, for Nehemiah, he had a very clear answer to that question. It was to see the glory of God on display in the renewal of Jerusalem and the people who lived there. Jerusalem, the city where God chose to make His name known, the joy of all the earth was still in ruins and the people were in trouble and shame. So its restoration and its renewal, that became Nehemiah's cause. He owned that. That's what he had to gain by stepping out in faith and acting. So what's to be gained as we go in God's direction as followers of Jesus Christ, as we step out in faith? It's really the same thing. It's to see the glory of God on display to the world in the renewal of the church that's being gathered in from all those who are yet to come in, but is also forming, it's, it's forming here, it's forming in all these local churches around the world. It's to see that thrive and see God's glory evident in it, to see the body of Jesus actually represent Him faithfully in the world. And so the world can see, what does it look like to be whole again, to be restored to the way our Creator intended? That's what we have to gain by stepping out in faith. It's the bigger goal. That vision made reality is what we're after uh, and that's why we step out in faith. But we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with the doing <laughs> of obeying God and doing the hard thing and doing the thing that seems risky. And we started to talk about it last, last week, and the reason it's hard is because there's resistance to taking that step. It's within us and it's outside of us. There's the fear of the unknown. Maybe something bad will happen if I do this or that. There's confusion about what's the right thing to do. Sometimes we just don't know. There's, there's resignation to the way things are. You know, I tried once and it just didn't go anywhere, so this is just the way it is. And there's, oppo there's opposition from others. 
So any of those things can hinder us from stepping out in faith and doing the thing that God would have us to do that we know about for His glory. To borrow Shakespeare's words in Hamlet, enterprises of great pith and moment lose the name of action because conscience does make cowards of us all. This is where Nehemiah chapter 2 helps us. Here's a man who had a heart for God's purposes in the world. He knew what needed to be done, and he resolved to do it. In the, in the process, he overcame the resistance within his own heart. He took action, and great things began to happen. So we're going to see what we can learn from his example, that we can be strengthened to take steps of faith ourselves for the glory of God and his first church. So the first lesson is this. Taking a step of faith involves trusting certainties more than fearing uncertainties. Could just say it means faith over fear. But let's hear that just a little bit differently. Taking a step of faith involves trusting certainties more than fearing uncertainties. As we read, Nehemiah is in the presence of the king and his moment arrives. It's time to bring up the topic of rebuilding Jerusalem. Whether he picked the time or the time picked him is not totally clear in the text. He hadn't been sad in the king's presence, but then we hear that the king notices that he is sad. So was that intentional? Did he sort of let it go so that he could get this thing, this conversation going? Or was it an unintentional slip, but the king is just very perceptive? We don't know. All we know is the moment of truth has come. The king asks him, why are you sad? And so when that happens, when the moment comes, when the moment of action comes to open his mouth and talk about Jerusalem, it says he was very much afraid. Not just afraid, not just much afraid, but very much afraid. That's probably for two reasons. One is that He knew this is probably his one shot at this. If he botches this, he may never get a chance again. But also, I would say, he knows there's the possibility that this could backfire on him. Remember that letter in Ezra chapter 4 where some locals wrote to King Artaxerxes and said, hey, these Jews are rebuilding the city and they're rebels, and so you need to put a stop to it? And he says, okay, I will. And he sends a decree saying, stop the work, right? That's, that, that decree is still in place right now. And so Nehemiah is going to the king saying, hey, I want to rebuild the city. That puts him on the side of the rebels potentially, doesn't it? And he wouldn't be the first cupbearer to get in bad favor with the king and maybe lose his life. Back in Genesis 40, Joseph is in prison. There's a cupbearer. There's a baker from the king. Why are they there? They displeased the king. So he interprets their dreams, and one of them gets freed, and the other one gets hanged because the king can do whatever he wants. If you make him mad, he can do that. Nehemiah knows this. He's the cupbearer. He could lose his life if this goes south. So he's very much afraid because there's a lot at stake in this moment, probably his life, definitely Jerusalem and whether it gets rebuilt. But he's ready with an answer because he's been preparing for this moment. 
He explains his personal sadness over the state of his ancestral city. He lays out the whole plan and everything that he needs, the letters that he needs to be written. I need a letter for the governors because they need to know that this, is, this has got your okay with it, that they let me in. I need a letter to the guy who runs the forest and controls the lumber because I need a lot of lumber. So he's got this all figured out. He already knows what he's going to ask. And then the king gives him what he asks for. He reverses the decree to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So when he asked for success and mercy in the, faith, in the sight of this man back in chapter 1, God said, yes, I will give it. Success and mercy in the sight of this man. How do we explain his boldness in that moment? That moment when he was very much afraid and this could go bad or this could go good. How did he get through that? How did he push through and say, here's the plan? <laughs> I think the way we say it is he trusted the certainties more than he feared the uncertainties. The uncertainties are obvious. I could fail. I could get hurt. That's always what's in the back of our mind when we don't want to do something, right? Failure or I could be totally injured here. Either one's enough reason to back down, right? But there's certainties also that he was aware of, which overruled his uncertainties. First, he had God's promise in Jeremiah 31 that this city is going to be rebuilt. Jeremiah 31, 38, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. Nehemiah knows God has promised that when the exiles return to that city, it is going to be rebuilt. So he's not making up some crazy idea before the king. You know, I just feel very energized. No, he's, he's got that energy grounded in God's promise. This thing's going to be rebuilt. So he knows I am totally in the will of God when I'm seeking this thing. And then secondly, God's character is certain. The promise is certain in his character. Back in chapter 1, in his prayer, he affirms the Lord is the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So if God says, this city is going to be rebuilt, well, he's the kind of God who keeps his word. He keeps covenant. If he says it, it's going to happen. I know this thing's going to be rebuilt. And he's looking at himself and he says, I'm the cupbearer to the king. I'm in this place of influence. Why not me? Why not now? Because this God is faithful. This promise is going to happen. Maybe now is the time. And he knows God's character. That he's also full of steadfast love so that whatever happens after he opens his mouth to the king is going to happen within the context of God's love. Love will direct what happens to me, whether for life or for death, but love will direct it. And that's what gets him over the hump, the certainties. God's promises, God's character will enable, us, enable him and enable us to be emboldened to do the hard thing, to do the step of faith. And we have those things as believers in Jesus. We have promises, 
and we have God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love. Promises that start with the sweetness of the one that we sing about the most, that in Christ we have forgiveness for sin. We have eternal life. Romans 1 says we belong to Jesus Christ. We are loved by God. We are called to be saints. These are facts. We, we operate within the realm of God's steadfast love that grab you, won't let you go, love. That's the environment that we're in. That's a promise of God to us. That's His character coming through. That by itself would be enough to give us courage if we really lived in it, really embraced, really believed that day by day. There's other promises too. Many promises for every day, all of which are yes in Christ Jesus, according to Corinthians. For example, when I was wrestling with whether or not to leave my scientist job to be a pastor, one possibility is that we would end up flat, broke, and unemployed within a year <laughs> because we had no guarantee of a job after we went, and we were going to spend all of our money on it. So that was a real possibility. That was my moment, like, we're going to do this or not. And here's what got me through. One verse, one promise, one certainty. It was Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And I was struck in that moment that the God who takes care of birds is going to take care of our family. And he did, because that's a promise. And that's the character of God to keep his promises. And that got us through. That got us out of, our, out of my old job and into a different world, into pastoral ministry. God's character and God's promises are certain, and believing them overcomes our fears of what is uncertain. Fears will always be there. <clears throat> But we can push through them if we become familiar with what God has promised and who He is as we grow deeper into Him. It's like those guys in Ukraine and Belarus. They just know, even though the world is falling down around us, we have a sure hope in Christ. Our life is safe with Him. Even if we die, we live. And those things deeply embedded in our heart. In that moment comes to, to take that step of faith, whatever it is, we do it. And that can be big things, small things. When you're thinking about being transparent about your life in discipleship group, that feels like a step of faith. It is a step of faith because maybe that's going to be gossiped about. Maybe they won't understand. Maybe I'll just get corrected right away. All sorts of things go off in our mind. Like, I don't want to be open. I don't want people to know what's going on because we have these fears about what will happen if we say it, right? And yet the saying of it, the sharing of it, is how we grow. It's how we invite each other into our, each other's lives to be, to be there, to encourage, to correct. But it's a step of faith, isn't it? But we can take it if we know, but God is for me. 
And my life is secure no matter what happens because I'm with Christ. When you start to think about a gospel conversation with a non-believer, classic moment of stepping out in faith, right? Should I say something that reveals that I'm a Christian and that I think they need Jesus and who knows where this is going to go? All of a sudden, stuff starts going off in our head. But wait a minute, God is for me and this is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I can't be ashamed of that. If you're thinking to spend a lot of time and a lot of money on something that seems to be the Lord leading, and you wonder, is this going to be right or not? But I know I have a God who takes care of birds. (laughs) And me. When you're thinking of a career change, a move, a mission trip, anything else that's weighty, that you think, as far as you know, is God's will, it's the certainties of His promises and His character that give you the courage to overcome the fear of the unknown. Here's how we can picture these moments of decision, just to, to give you like a, an analogy. Imagine you're hiking and you come to a chasm that has a log stretched over it, and you don't know if you can cross that log without falling into the chasm, and you're afraid. But Jesus has gone ahead of you, and he's on the other side, and he says, follow me and cross over. But then he also says there's a safety net underneath the log. You can't see it, but it's there. And that safety net is woven together with all the promises of God, every one unbreakable. Like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or all things work together for good to those who love God. Or nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. He says that net is woven with all of those unbreakable promises, and if you fell in it, it would hold you up. You may fall off the log, but you won't fall into the chasm. You'll be kept, and you'll make it to the other side. So come to me. That's every decision that we make when we face the trial, that step of faith that we have to take. He's saying, come. And there's a net (laughs) that I wove to keep you from falling into the chasm. That's our reality in Christ. We will be held up in every circumstance, and we will be on our way to everlasting joy with Jesus. Those things can't change. Here's another lesson. A step of faith will not look the same for everyone. This comes from verses 9 and 10. Let's read what happens after the king grants Nehemiah's request. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, we keep hearing more about Sanballat and Tobiah because they will oppose this rebuilding project big time. They come back into the story. But I want to focus on here something that might seem like a trivial footnote, but it isn't trivial. 
Nehemiah mentions that the king sent with him officers of the army and horsemen. Now that means he had a military escort to go to Judah, to Jerusalem on this thousand-mile journey. He had protection. Now that might not seem of interest to you, except when you compare it to Ezra's journey. Thirteen years before that, same journey, same king sending him. Ezra could have asked for a military escort if he wanted it, but he didn't ask for one. We read about it in Ezra 8, 22 and 23. Ezra said, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So Ezra doesn't ask for military protection. He just asks God for protection. Nehemiah, however, is given a military escort, and he doesn't refuse it. Both take the same journey. Both are on their way to the same mission to make known the glory of God in Jerusalem, and they have two different answers as to whether or not to have a military escort. Which one do you think did the right thing? <laughs> did Ezra act in faith and Nehemiah not act in faith? Is it more godly for Ezra to say, we're just going to trust God, we're not going to need one? Shall we put it to a vote? <laughs> the answer is both accepting and rejecting the military escort were acts of faith. Two different decisions were made within two different contexts. For Ezra, he was concerned about the message it would send to rely on an escort when he had just proclaimed that God's protection is on us. So he's concerned about the witness that it is to the king and to others. And so that's why he's praying and fasting. He's like, man, we better, this better really work. Because <laughs> we just said that it's going to work. Nehemiah, on the other hand, he's going to reverse a decree of the king about rebuilding the city. He's going back to the place where everybody knows the king has said no, and he's coming in to say, we're going to build it. And it would be very helpful to have the king's escort come with us to prove to everybody this is really the new deal. This is the change in policy. The, the king himself has sent his soldiers and his officers. He accepted that as God's generosity to help make sure this thing worked. The takeaway is that a step of faith will not look the same for everybody. It has two implications for us. First, it means we should not be too quick to judge the decisions of other believers according to our own standard of what we think they should be doing. During the pandemic, there were a lot of different opinions about what we should be doing. What is a step of faith? Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Vaccinate, don't get vaccinated. Social distance, don't social distance. Lots of different opinions about what we should be all doing as Christians, right? Or add other decisions that are not related to the pandemic. Homeschool, not homeschool. Go into debt for something, don't go into debt for something. 
right? We have opinions about these things, don't we? It's fine to have different opinions. But when we make our opinions the standard for what stepping out in faith looks like, then it goes off track. God's Word is the standard, not our application of God's Word. And the application may be different in different situations, just like it was for Ezra and Nehemiah. Romans 14.4 reminds us to have an attitude of generosity toward fellow believers. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, let God be the judge. He's the master. Let's be for each other in taking steps of faith, even if they are different from the way I would do it. The flip side of this is that we have freedom to do something differently than somebody else would do it. It can actually be a lack of faith to do something just because that's what somebody else has done or that's what we've always done. We can just like go into the rut. There's no faith involved. It's like, well, if you do this, then it works. We can put our trust in what has worked rather than the Lord himself. I have that temptation all the time. When I find, about, find out about what other pastors are doing, what other churches are doing, and they seem to be doing so well, and they're growing, and they have the secret sauce, you know? So that's what we should be doing. It's good to learn what other people are doing, and we might adapt some of their strategies, but the Lord also calls us to deal with Him personally. Ask Him for guidance in our specific time, our specific place, our specific circumstances. It may look different. The Lord is the one who gives the increase, whether the program is a good one or a bad one. (laughs) So if you're genuinely seeking the Lord... If you're conforming to His Word as best as you know how, if you're getting godly counsel from others so that your ideas aren't just in your own head, but they're challenged, they're evaluated, if you've gone through all of that, then your step of faith may still look different than somebody else's. And just don't second-guess it. Just do it. God has given us freedom there. One more lesson from Nehemiah. This is about stepping out in faith. Your step of faith can strengthen others to do the same. Your step of faith can strengthen others to do the same. Otherwise, you you could be the catalyst that gets a whole bunch of other people like, yeah, we could do this. This comes from the rest of the passage. I won't read verses 11 to 16, but they read like a scene from a movie. Nehemiah goes secretly out at night to examine the city ruins. He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing, what he's thinking. You can imagine a full moon and a, and a coyote howling in the background. He takes his donkey or his camel and he walks the perimeter. He sees how big of a job this is going to be. In some places, he has to dismount because the rubble is just too much. His camel or his donkey can't get through it. But he's assessing the whole situation. He's getting an idea, the scale of this project. And then he goes back home. And then the next morning, he calls together the leaders of the Jews. 
and he presents his plan. That starts in verse 17. Here's what he says. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That's a clinic on how to stir up faith. <laughs> like, this is going to happen. <laughs> this is how you stir up and inspire others to join a common cause, because that was the effect of the meeting. First, he lays out the need of the hour. Jerusalem lies in ruins. He lays out the plan. Let's build the wall. Let's build this thing, because the wall is the outer defenses, and we need that to keep the enemies out. We'll get to the houses later. Let's start with the wall. So he's got a plan, and he encourages them. God is in this. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Look, there's evidence, guys, that, that this is going to work. The king, he gave me letters. We've got keys to the forest. <laughs> we got supplies. It's happening. Let's do this. They encourage him. God is in this, and the result is... After one meeting, 90 years of inactivity, right? That's how long it's been that the exiles have been in Jerusalem. 90 years, no city building. All of a sudden, one meeting, and they're like, let's do this. <laughs> and things change. They get going. The lesson here is your faith can strengthen others to do the same. We pretty much knew, know as believers what we're called to do, what God wants us to do. The Bible's full of instruction and principle and vision. But we're often just waiting for somebody else to go first, right? For somebody to say, here's how you do it, to, to actually put some kind of details into it at a time and a place and a way. And then, and then like, let's do this together. And then all of a sudden, now maybe we will. Aren't we like that? <laughs> That's what got me doing door-to-door -door evangelism in college um, when I first became a Christian. I mentioned this at the men's retreat. You know, of all the scariest things to do, uh, knocking on strangers' doors and saying, can I talk to you about Jesus? Like, that ranks way up there, right? For me, especially, brand-new Christian. So we have this campus meeting, and, and the, the charge, the, the exhortations put out there, hey, this Friday or Saturday, whatever it is, we're going to go do this between these times. We're going to go knock on doors. We're going to share the gospel with people, and then we're going to get back together and see how it went. So the time comes, and we're all in our group kind of praying, getting ready for this, and we're looking at each other, okay, are we going to do this? We're going to do this, right? All right, let's go do this. And then we go do it. And then Lo and behold, there we are in a secular university knocking on dorms, talking to people about Jesus. Why did we do it? 
because somebody went first, somebody had the idea, other people were getting involved, and all of a sudden, okay, we can do this, right? The same thing happened when Spencer and Alyssa sent us that email back in April. I looked back at it, that's how long it goes, in April saying, hey, we need to get involved in our city, here's a plan, here's a way. I looked, I read, reread their email which was about, like, how do we get involved in the city and save families was going to be one of the, the ways we do it, right? And I was looking back in the email as I was reading through, through Nehemiah, and I was like, that has the same elements as what Nehemiah was doing for these guys. Um, they had a need. They stated the need. We got to strengthen our go aspect. Get in our, get in our community. They laid out the plan for how we're going to do it. We have a course followed by a sign-up, followed by training, followed by actually meeting hurting people and doing something for them. And their own example of already being doing that strengthened us, like this can be done. And now we're rising up to build, so to speak, and a bunch of us are involved in safe families. Bottom line, when you take a step of faith, it strengthens others to do the same. Not always, because sometimes you have a great passion to do something for the Lord and there's no takers. That could be either because the good hand of the Lord isn't actually upon it or it's because it's really just for you and not for everybody else. That can also be what happens. But the general rule is we are inspired by the faith of other people and what they are doing for the Lord by faith. That's why we have a whole chapter, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Weak people like us who just did amazing things by faith so that we could imitate that. Your steps of faith can be contagious. And in a church, that helps create a community of people stepping out in faith. And when we have that, we have an environment for God to do amazing things. Let me close with this. What step of faith is God calling you to make on the path of following Jesus? I don't know what that is for any specific person, but there are a few things that apply to believers in general. We step out in faith by getting involved in the church. First of all, the church God has put us in, making gospel culture an experienced reality. That means transparency in our lives, being honest about our sins and our failures, but also encouraging one another in the grace and forgiveness of God in Christ. It could be bring a prophetic word to the microphone on a Sunday morning. That's always scary, right? I don't know if this is from the Lord or if this is pizza, you know, uh, but I'm going to go try. Could be volunteering to serve on a ministry team, even though that's inconvenient and you don't feel like you'd be a good teacher or helper or whatever, and a lot of other things like that. We also step out in faith by living spiritually obvious lives in our secular environment. So we don't hide our faith in Christ, but people know we're Christians by our love for one another, by our love for them, by our love for the Lord. We pursue a friendship with a non-believer, and then we walk with that friend towards Jesus. We do good works for others in Jesus' name. And we don't let any dream for ministry die just because it seems out of reach or risky. Faith always involves risk. 
There are always uncertainties and potentials for failure. To not take any of those risks is to not exercise faith. The Christian faith is an adventure in which we trust the certainties of God's character and His promises more than we fear the uncertainties of failure. So, for example, we're spending more money than our budget actually has in it to go to the pastor's conference this week. (laughs) We knew that going in. We put the budget together, we looked at how much it would cost to send as many people as we wanted, and it wasn't there. But we thought, we've got to do this. This is strategic for the long-term health of this church to continue to raise up leaders who have the vision for what God is doing in this world and in this city. And so we're going to send them, and we're going to trust that He supplies it. Our region kicked in 3000 bucks. We still probably went over budget despite that, but we trust that this is from the Lord. We're going to do this thing. Is there a risk? Sure there is, but we're going to do this thing. We kicked around the idea, I mentioned this a while back, of getting a building of our own, a place where we can have more opportunities and options for ministry, right? Not to mention a place where we don't have to compete with the soundtrack of another church while we're praying on Wednesday night. Some of us were here. It got pretty loud on the other side of that wall, even though we were in that other room. Lord willing, we might be involved in planning a church one day. When I went to the Antioch cohort in El Paso, that was the whole thing. It's like God's vision for reaching the world is to plant churches that go into their communities with the gospel. So why not keep pushing for it? Just because you're 90 people doesn't mean you can't be involved in planning a church. Those ideas are not crazier than rebuilding Jerusalem. It had lain dormant for 90 years. The king forbid it to be rebuilt. The enemies were resisting it, and yet in one conversation, everything changed. And so let's not consider it crazy until God absolutely shuts it down. (laughs) We have a choice with what we're going to do with every day. We can play it safe and never step out in faith. But that probably leads to what Theodore Roosevelt said in the early 1900s. It results in timid spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Well, I don't want to live that way. (laughs) I don't think you do either. The other choice is to trust in the Lord and step out in faith. It's the attitude of Prince Rillian in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Silver Chair, from the Narnia series, where Aslan represents Jesus Christ. So facing the challenge of going into a city and possibly to their death, Rillian said this to his friends, Aslan will be our good Lord, whether he means to live or die, and all's one for that. Now by my counsel... We shall all kneel and kiss his likeness, and then all shake hands one with another as true friends that may be shortly parted. And then let us descend into the city and take the adventure that is sent us. (laughs) Yes, let's do that. Let's trust the certainties of God's character and God's promises and let that overcome our fears and the uncertainties. And may the good hand of the Lord be upon us as we do it.
Let's pray. We're ordinary people, Lord, but that's who you've always used to do anything in this world. Whether it was rebuilding Jerusalem, whether it was planting all the churches in the book of Acts, you have always used people like us who just say yes, who just trust you and do the next thing in faith. Whether little or big, we ask you, Lord, for your good hand to be upon us to help us to make it through the fear because we want to gain the great prize of your church growing and thriving and being full of life till one day we're all together in glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Stand and sing this prayer that... God would lead us on as we journey to the new Jerusalem. Mm -hmm.